This is episode number one of the Street Photography Magazine podcast. And welcome to the Street Photography Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Bob Patterson, from streetphotographymagazine.com. And this is our first real edition of the Street Photography Magazine podcast, and I'm really pleased to uh, be using this as a vehicle to bring our interviews with street photographers worldwide to um, everybody, and not just uh, not just a few subscribers. Uh, it's been a very popular feature in our magazine, and we've decided to turn it into a podcast and make it available to everybody. And uh, this week we have a very special interview to feature for our first edition. But before we get to that, a little bit of news. Uh, a good friend of our magazine, uh, Len Spire, who we featured in the magazine back in the springtime of 2014, and uh, we'll put a link to that issue in here. Uh, Len celebrated his 87th birthday back in October, on October 11th. So a happy belated birthday to Len. And Len is really a true gentleman, um, one of the coolest people I've interviewed on here. He, um, After we interviewed him, he sent me a print of one of his uh, new photos. And then after we published the magazine, he sent me a print of photos that we featured in the magazine and used on the cover. And he also sent me a print of the cover itself. So really thank Len for that. It's very nice. Uh, we've got them framed and hanging in the office. And so a big thank you to Len for that. And I tell you, Len, although he's turned 87, he uh, has difficulty walking sometimes, but that doesn't slow him down. He continues to submit his work to various galleries and exhibitions around the world. And he told me that he uh, was selected to be featured at the Amanda Smith Gallery in Johnson City, Texas. And they're doing a um, special gallery that, uh, or I mean, a, a special exhibition. And Len submitted five photos. They accepted three of them, and they're using one on the uh, cover, or not the cover, but a brochure that they, they're printing for the exhibition. Now, I happen to be going to Texas very soon, and... I'm going to be in San Antonio. Johnson City sits between San Antonio and Austin, a little bit to the west. And we're planning a trip out to Hill Country. And if we get up in the Johnson City area, uh, I'm definitely going to go into the gallery and, and see the stuff for myself. I think that's really exciting. Uh, Len never ceases to submit his stuff, and it really pays off. And I encourage you to do, do the same thing. Okay, now for our featured photographer in this uh, this edition, I'm bringing back an interview we did in the magazine a few months ago. It was one that I found really fascinating, and I thought it's a great one to uh, kick off our our podcast with, and that's with Glenn Capers. Um, Glenn is a longtime photojournalist. He used to work for the Associated Press. And today he teaches lots of workshops around the world, and he's very different. He's he he doesn't do big workshops. He does very small ones, very small, intimate ones in places all around the world, and and they can last a long time. They can last a couple of weeks, 
And uh, he's done some really cool things down in South and Central America. Uh, he was just in Nepal not too long ago. In fact, when I interviewed him, he had just arrived in Amsterdam to do a workshop. And I think I caught him. I mean, he had just gotten off the plane the night before, so he's still jet lagged. But uh, we had a really good conversation. And I encourage you to, to look at his work. We're going to include some in the uh, in the show notes of the podcast here. And he's done some really cool photo stories, which we talk about in the interview. Um, Len is just a, a master storyteller. You know, not not only uh, photographically, but uh, in the spoken word as well. So he's got some great stories to tell. So I encourage you just to, to listen to our podcast with uh, photographer Glenn Capers. And today I'm with Glenn Capers. He is originally from New York, now living in Colorado Springs. And, and Glenn has done everything. He's a former photojournalist, cinematographer, landscape photographer. Uh, he's a documentary photographer. He teaches all the time, teaches workshops. And he's a world traveler. I'm really jealous of you, Glenn, as a matter of fact, because you get to travel to all these cool places. Um, and a number of other things that I'm sure we'll talk about. So, Glenn, welcome, and thanks for being with us today. Well, thanks for inviting me for this special interview. It's really nice of you. Oh, no, it's it's really good to have you. You do such wonderful work that I'm glad you're able to get on here and share it. And Glenn, by the way, just arrived in Oslo, Norway a couple of days ago. He's still uh, jet-lagged on Colorado time, and so I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy travel schedule to do this. So, anyway, let's start real quickly just to get a little bit of background about you. I know I said some general things. Uh, I I know you were a photojournalist for a while, and I just wonder if you could just tell us how you got into photography and, you know, what drew your interest and in, in what you're doing today. Well, photography came in two ways for me. One, as a child. Um, my mother was a singer. And one day she brought home a Worldflex 500 camera. And I looked into it, and everything was in reverse. And we started going to the museums in New York and in Philadelphia. And I became interested that way. And I started documenting the projects I lived in as a child. And at that time, it was very, very interesting. After that... I think photography just disappeared from the planet for me. And I decided to be a playwright. And I wanted to be a poet. And one of my favorite poets was William Carlos Williams, a Hispanic doctor living in East Harlem. And he used to write about the simple elements of people when he'd be going from house to house to make his house calls. And it was, you know, it was really touching. Kind of like the old lady walking down the street in the hot summer heat holds a plum in her hand. You can tell how much she likes it by how she holds it and how she savors the sweet juice that falls down from her lips. You know, I was like, oh, this is visual. So in my playwright class, a teacher of mine, Bob Potter, who is now deceased from 
the University of Santa Barbara in California. He said, you know, you should photograph the people you write about. And I said, okay. I knew nothing about photography. I went out and bought an Instamatic 110, thinking that that was a real big camera. And I was very disappointed to see how tiny the film <laughs> the film was. But what I did with my grant money was I bought a camera in lieu of, instead of paying for my uh, one month's rent in an apartment while going to school. And I sold my first picture. I sold two pictures, one behind the other, which paid my rent instantly. And I said, what am I doing? I should be a photographer. And I got hooked. But it was still at a time when there was too many personal problems and segregation at schools that were even considered hip and cool. For an example, I went to the Nexus newspaper to shoot, and they basically laughed me out the door. And then I went to the yearbook, and I had two pictures, picture of my face with a goatee and a storm with the sun rays coming out of a hole over the ocean, and I superimposed them. And they said, can you do better? And I said, of course I can. <laughs> and the deal was... I was supposed to shoot all 365 black students at the University of Santa Barbara. The problem with that is I didn't know all 365. And, that's a lot of friends. Know, that's a lot of friends, and we were all very, you know, private people. So I think for that yearbook, only three people were in it, myself, my girlfriend, and a teacher. And... They gave me the use of the darkroom and everything else, and it was pretty wild and crazy. After that, I graduated and went to New York, and I was in my mother's dressing room, and these three little old ladies came in, and they saw some of my work, and they said, well, how would you like to work for UNICEF? <laughs> At... I didn't know what UNICEF was, and I asked my mother, and she said, oh, it's a nice little organization that takes Christmas pictures. <laughs> so I went to the interview, and there was this guy sitting there, uh, Delgado. He's kind of, he did the Genesis book, but when he was young and when he had hair. And um, I don't think we really talked, but he was in the room, and they said to me, well, do you speak Spanish? And I said, oh, see, you know, and they gave me a, an assignment, which was to go to Mexico City, Chiapas, uh, Honduras, um, Tegucigalpa, and, and its regions around there, and the jungles in northern Panama, and then to Bogota, and from Bogota, I was in Haiti back when there was only two water holes in the city of Port-au-Prince. And it was really cool, but what I didn't realize it was about, it was about investigative journalism. And when you don't know what investigative journalism is, and you're shooting what you see, and you realize that the whole world is living on the black market, 
just to survive and to take care of people. You know, it's it's a little frightening. After that three years, I decided that I wanted to learn something about journalism. And I went to Los Angeles City College, and I met a really great professor who is alive, who is teaching in Los Angeles. His name is Joe Deutschak. He's kind of a crazy man, but he's brilliant. And what he did to me was I had reached a level in my photography where I wanted to do more. I wanted to get hired. And I was doing his class projects. When class projects are nothing. For an example, in that particular portfolio, I had a parking lot with a chain, a portrait of a baby, and a picture of a dog jumping for a biscuit. And he sent me to the Associated Press of Los Angeles. Now, I was really naive, and I went I went there. I did what he said. He was the teacher. He was also the head dean at the school. And I met this man by the name of Spencer Jones, who was the West Coast Bureau Chief of the Associated Press, which basically means he was the number two photo editor on the planet for the Associated Press. And I handed him my work. I was very proud of it. Well, skeptical, but proud. And he looked at it, and he was quiet, and he started laughing. And then he passed it to another photographer. He looked at it and started laughing. And then he passed it to another, and soon everybody was laughing at my work. Hmm. And I didn't know what was happening. And he said, uh, come back when you're serious. <laughs> and there was this guy who's a good friend now also, Dennis Whitehead, who was a sub-photo editor, walked me out, and he, he said, don't be upset. And he said, look, the photographers you just that just looked at your work all have Pulitzers. <laughs> and I still didn't know what a Pulitzer was, just to be very honest about it. And um, I did come back when I was ready. And when I saw my teacher that day, I, you know, I gave him uh, mindful of my thoughts. Well, how could you send me to such a prestigious place with Duke the Duck and Bowser the Dog picture? You know, <laughs> had nothing to do with life. So we worked on that element, and I went back, and there was a demonstration in Beverly Hills where Iranians were encountering the JDL Jewish Defense League. And it got into a fist fight on the street. And I took my film back to Spencer. And he was in there yelling at people and throwing their film out the window. <sighs> and I was totally frightened. And he got to my film and he yells out, who shot this stuff? And I worried. And I said, well, I did. And he looked at it and he says, how would you like the work for the Associated Press? Wow. And I, the, I went, uh, you know. And why he liked the picture was it said on the corner of Beverly Hills Drive and Wilshire Boulevard, people were fighting the two different cultures, which is kind of like now 
in history was like the beginning of hating the Middle East and, and, and having questions about Israel. So I made a good friend there. His name was Nick Ott. Nick Ott won a Pulitzer for the for being in Vietnam. And he had the little baby that was completely naked walking down the street with his arms spread out, mm-hmm. her arms spread out, because yep. she had been a little burnt, I guess. Yep. And um, I learned that he was just a lab tech in Vietnam. And he wasn't a photographer, but his brother was killed, and they gave him his camera to go out and shoot, and that's what he brought back. And we would sit in the dark room for hours and hours and look at pictures that came in and go over the pictures on the wire of other photographers that he would follow, and I got a, a good sense of stuff. In, in, in the California, in the journalism department, they have two competitions, um, southern section and northern section, and then all of the sections, where they compete for the best journalist, newspaper, photographers, and the different category, categories, sports, features, photo stories, documentaries, magazine, newspapers, the whole bit. Well, my last year, I won everything from first, second, and third prize, and I only left the honorable mentions for everybody else. And that caught the eye of um, a newspaper called San Bernardino, and they they used to be called San Berdu. (laughs) And San Berdu was considered probably the best small newspaper in the nation for a photographer. And the photo editor was Ron Mann. And Ron Mann did a lot of good things for a lot of people that he hired at one point in his life. And, you know, we all worship him as a friend. Anyway, from then on, the world of photography and in the professional sense became pretty incredible because everybody was into winning awards. So I was no different into winning awards and shooting. When he left, we got a second editor and that wasn't as much fun. And then I transferred to another paper and that wasn't as much fun. But that newspaper sent me to cover the war in El Salvador. Mm. And a lot of greatness for me came out of that um, the John F. Kennedy citation uh, for humanitarianism in documenting a war and the Leica Medal of Excellence for the same thing. Unfortunately, my newspaper didn't allow me to go shake the hand of Ben Davison or whatever his name is at Magnum. And uh, so they had to change the award to something else and Although I got my award, someone else got a similar award, but different title, which was okay for me. And I then left the newspapers and went into working for Newsweek off and on and Time Magazine off and on and the L.A. Times. And this is during a time of flux, Murdoch, Murdoch <laughs> buying newspapers. 
and firing photographers. And then I, I just got the feeling that I really didn't want to work for anybody. And I started getting the feeling that all these people who I worshipped or thought was wonderful was nothing but a janitor. We were all janitors to a, an assignment with restrictions and what we had to shoot. Now, if you stay in an organization that lives by the, the belief of being a janitor with a camera, well, your mind shrinks. And when you look at some of the masters, these are the people who stayed strong as individuals like Eugene Smith, Prasan, Elliot, you know. They kept their individualism. And today, some other photographers are seeking their individualism with a camera. And I think that you can't find it with a camera. You have to look inside yourself to find what it is you want to communicate or share. You spent a long time in the, uh, probably in the in the golden years of photojournalism and uh, uh, by the way my, my son went to school to be a photojournalist went to, oh, okay. went to Ohio University oh. in the photojournalism school actually got a job out of college for a year before he got laid off right when those jobs are really disappearing and still working as a photographer which is good but um, I mean are those days gone forever well, I don't think the days are gone forever. I just think we're going through uh, an evolution form of change in in the question of who's behind the camera. You have to remember that what the old masters did was developed an interest for photo editors and and um, managers to see the world and understand what was happening socially. And it caused people to become interested in pictures. But as time has changed with the corruption of politics, journalism has kind of taken a dark horse look, like people want to know the truth for themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's not that journalists did anything wrong. It's just that you couldn't trust the news. And Canon decided to market cameras to the to the public. And you have to remember the famous the two famous ads, Cheryl Tiggs mm-hmm. with a, a rebel camera saying, Hold it, fellas as they were in the middle of a steeplechase jumping over, and, and all of a sudden they would freeze and she'd get the picture and say thank you, and they'd go on and running, to today's pictures of you can shoot like a pro, you can be the cinema photographer like the pros with the Canon. People believe these things. And so when they go out and buy cameras, they think they're all instant professionals or instant great photographers, and they're not, but they are now 
sitting on top above a professional. They're sitting above a master because they have looked at a million pictures. They might not understand it, but if you look at the entire population of the earth with a camera, somebody around the world will take a brilliant picture that no master can beat that day Mm -hmm. or the next day. But maybe one day in the year, (laughs) it's, it's because more people are shooting and more people have access and more people are just walking around in their daily life. You can look at photographers who are considered working for famous agencies. They get on a big jet and then they go walk around someplace for a couple of weeks or a week or on and off where Susan or Bob or Mohammed is lives there and has an interest with a camera. They see a whole lot more than the so-called professional sees or the amateur sees. But where the amateur has a strength is that he works within his environment 24-7. He might not realize how wonderful his work is until 10, 20, 30 years from now. Because when you look at the masters, you're looking at pictures that are 70 years old, 50, 60 years old, 80 years old, and you're going, wow, these are great looking back. So it will come back, but it's going to come back with new people at the head, uh, common people. And they will become professional photographers out of their own interest and drive to understand something, providing they get that far. You know, got to make an interesting point. I mean, to me, photographers are like golfers, and they'll, they'll spend anything to get a little yeah. bit of an edge. Um, and also, myself, I'm a lousy golfer, but I've hit every shot I've ever had, needed to make, ever. But my problem is I can't string them all together into one game. <laughs> They just get one every once in a while. Well, you know, it, the, you know, the interesting thing about your golf analogy is this. It's probably because you use all the different irons and clubs in your bag. And you know as well as I do, you're probably great with your seven, your three, and... Um, Definitely not the three. <laughs> oh, okay. Well... <laughs> For me, it's the it's the three and the seven and the putter. If I can hit with those three, I'm going to have a nice day playing golf. Nothing, you know, nothing that's you know stellar, but you know, I don't come out with a score of over a hundred. <laughs> but, but it keeps you coming back, <laughs> right? So the thing is, in photography, is learn one lens. Be great with one lens. Don't sit there and play with a zoom. Because chances are you will miss 90% of your pictures. I agree 100%. I don't even use a Zoom anymore. There you go. Right. Yeah, it was when I, I bought a camera with a fixed lens that, and using it for a couple years steady that got me to realize, you know, I don't need this thing. Exactly. Exactly. 
Well, you know, I mean, no one's told what they need and what they don't need mm-hmm. ever when it comes to shooting street. You you learn the hard way. You learn by spending money and making a mistake, um, gear-wise. Enough said. The next thing you learn, I think, in Shooting Street is who you are. If you are a privileged person, well, then you're going to have problems that reflect your privilege um, or your entitlement, which is the new barrier today in photography. And no one's dealing with it. Then once your personality gets broken down by somebody, and that's something I like to do to people, and it's not necessarily pretty, but it's what's necessary in order to make a change in their photography. Um, you you start to see the world in front of you differently. You know, you're saying, why am I there? You hear amateurs talk about, I love to take pictures because it makes me happy. Well, I remember telling people that where we're going, you need fast lenses. And the fastest lens they had was a 3.5, and it was, um, I don't know, it was a 80 to 200. But they had a great uh, D3. But it, it didn't help them at 5.45, between 5.20 and 5.45 in the morning <laughs> when people were praying in the Ganji. And we got lucky to get close enough and personal. Their pictures were a blur. We're, we're drifting. Things rock. So if you weren't shooting with 1.8 or 2, you you had no hope you had no hope so they learned that way they also learned that if you're going to shoot street you have to get into people's spaces and you have to do it in a way where you're not threatening and they're not threatening and you have to see the good that's going to come out of this and why you're doing this. If you don't have that and if you're not serious, shooting street is very difficult. That's why when you see street photography, you see a lot of portraits. And then you also see, well, there's an interesting poster on that wall. I'll just wait here until somebody comes and I'll shoot it with a long lens, and then maybe if I'm bold, I'll shoot it with a wider lens. And if I'm bolder, I might even ask them, if, the next person, if I can shoot them right there. And you have a conflict because the, 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 the truth in your work, when you look at your portfolio or your 36 pictures, more or less, or 200 pictures, <laughs> everything looks the same. Everybody, It's a headshot. It's a headshot. It's a headshot. It's not street portrait. It's a headshot. And 
someone will say, well, I like this one and this one and maybe that one, you know, out of all those pictures. And you kind of go, well, what about these? So you then realize, well, I should have shot other things besides headshots and worry about how to do that next. You know, so there's a, there's an old saying, you, you, you learn going ass backwards. And when you take a workshop, you have to remember that you're not guaranteed um, the silver bullet. You're, you're guaranteed that you're going to learn what you did wrong. And if you really care, you'll come back and do it right the next time. Yeah, it's 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 like that. But the pressure on workshops is, you know, is unbelievable of people taking other amateurs to a place to stand here, take that picture. Oh, it looks great. Yeah, but there's nothing to it. And that gets down into probably more the into more of the interesting things of shooting street is learning how to shoot street, which leads into documentaries where, for some reason, curiosity develops and you have a common thought and a common vocabulary of ideas and you you ask questions or they ask questions and next thing you know, you're inside a home. One day, we were walking down the street and... A woman was upset and mourning, and we went over and, you know, photographed her. And I thought that would upset her. And I handed her a flower, and she really liked the flower. And she invited me in, and she gave it to her dying mother. And so there I had a workshop of nine people with a woman about to die. And that documentary took 15 minutes. So the group had to learn how to shoot a full story in 15 minutes on the go. You know, and you can't say, stop, can you look this way? Can you be this? Can you do all this? It's real life. And the last picture came the day day later when they took her to the um, crematorium where Instead of burning her on the, you know, the open flames, they put her in the ovens. And this little man is, he's got this medieval, like, turning wheel. And he's turning the wheel, and the body is going into the flames. And it's like an Auschwitz picture or, a, oh. <laughs> you know, like, something like that. And, and you know, I put it together. And... uh I sent it off, and, you know, some people thought it was too strong. But, you know, that's life. That's shooting street. That's understanding what other people feel and what they do in life. And the the offshoot of this or the byproduct of shooting street is the worst thing you can hear someone say is, oh, thank God I'm not like that, or, we have it better or we're much more fortunate. The truth is, you don't. You don't. Yeah, There's all, no difference. That's right. We all wind up the same way, right? Yeah. Did uh, The story you just told, was that the uh, project you did, Healing Hands? Yes. 
Yeah, healing hands. Oh, well, I I recommend anybody look at that. Matter of fact, we'll have a link to it in the story. Um, that really struck me. I, I just looked at it the other day, and we had just lost my mother-in-law not too long ago. And when I looked at that. It was, it was hard to look at, but it was really, it was very, very powerful. And uh, uh, I'm glad you did that. Well, and, and that yeah. was that was just from walking up to somebody on the street. And, exactly. And, wow. And and also for not just for me, but the people that I was teaching to at the time, they were in tears. They were, you know, petrified. But when it was over, they felt that they had crossed a barrier uh, in their own life, and had a much clearer um, viewpoint of what photography is and and I and I like it because for me when I look at where photography has come from and, and you know it's basically street was a general picture of patterns and people and you really couldn't identify anybody per se to, let's say, World War II, where you started to see characters who were not liked in history, <laughs> who were pretty dark. And then we go into, let's say, the 60s, where you have hippies, marijuana, and peace, and the anti-Vietnam movement, you know, you have those things, and also you have um, the, before that, you just have the civil rights movement in their pictures. But what they all seem to have lacked is the evolutionary growth of understanding who the people are. And that's what I'm about, who the people are, and that's what I like to teach who are the people you are photographing? What's important to them? How do they see life? What gives them their reason to continue on? That's where journalism and street photography ICL. I think the um, well, the Healing Hand series. I don't think you could have gotten that across with just one photo from that entire selection. No, you know, you, no. you needed all of them. Right. You know, which, which you know, brings us down to a really interesting question. When we were all kids in probably junior high learning English and how to grammatically break things apart, one of the first statements you learned in your English book or questions where they asked you, what is a sentence? And they said, they would say, a sentence is a group of words expressing a single thought. Well, that's what you need to take into your photography. A sentence in photography or a photo story or a documentary is a, a group of in, images expressing a single thought. And most people don't have the um, uh, ability to stay that focused because of their wonderful super-duper cameras, <laughs> you know, the simple, the simpler your camera, 
the less you think about, the more you stay in tune with what's in front of your face. You know, and what's in front of you is what you think is interesting. And even more important, what you believe you can work with at whatever level you are as an amateur or a professional or a master or, you know, whatever that is. You know, basic mechanics, you know, and, and then and then my other joke is what came first, pictures or words? And I say pictures because I was in the southwest looking at a petroglyph a couple of miles off the highway, and it showed a hunter just about walking up to a deer and throwing his spear. And I'm kind of going, oh, come on. You can't get that close to a deer. They'd <laughs> spot you and they're gone. Well, where this was, was where water used to run. So there must have been a lot of green growth. And the wind always blew downwind from the deer so the deer wouldn't smell you. And so here, a guy selected the rock, where the action took, what he did to tell someone 2,000 years ago, this is how you do it. <laughs> you know, it, there weren't any words. <laughs> no pictures. Not written ones anyway. Not written ones, right. So, you know, we need to get back to that. And I also think the good thing about all camera companies and photography is that it's causing people to look at pictures again and develop an interest. And when these people really start to utilize pictures, the grandmasters and the other people who are more privileged and more super camera photography agencies, I will name none, <laughs> they won't be around anymore. It'll be the the other people you saw in the playgrounds or who decided to get a camera and continue with it. You know, so it's it's kind of interesting. So going back to your your sentence analogy, how a string of photos is a complete thought. Um and and then to some of these projects that you work with people on when you do the workshops. How do you teach that? <sighs> Well, you know, unfortunately, there is no there's no method. It's it's very intuitive because everybody is an individual with their own ego and their own uh, understanding of being taught. You know, mm. people are great at misinterpreting the purposes, even when you tell them. And when you focus on them, they become defensive. So you have to learn how to break down uh, a person's wall as gently as possibly, which isn't easy. Um, you, you run the risk of people saying, I hate your workshop, or I hate you, or they walk away. And I've been lucky because no one's walked away. As a matter of fact, everybody keeps coming back. And I guess I guess you you know it's a trial and error. It's like uh, Tom Cruise at Top Gun, uh, crash and burn, and they have to learn 
to love the idea of crashing and burning and not crashing and burning uh, to go forward. Yeah, I remember just watching the uh, Winter Olympics and you see these guys doing uh, um, the ski jumps. I mean, mm-hmm. how, how do you learn that without killing yourself? Uh, <laughs> you can learn photography without <laughs> killing yourself. But <laughs> The one, the few people that land on their feet continue on. The others don't. <laughs> it's like the samurai, huh? Yeah, right. <laughs> only, right, the, only, right. yeah. Oh, oh, the good just keep getting better, and the the rest just die lousy. Right. So, right. street. Where does street photography lead for somebody when they when they take it up? Well. It, I think street photography is something where you have to ask yourself, why am I doing it? Is it a sport? Because there's lots of people who say, it's more like a collection of what I shot. It's like the great white hunter goes to Africa. Oh, I shot a rhino. I shot a white leopard. Or I shot a this. Or I went to India and I shot that. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Mm. You know. Next. <laughs> next. Right. That, that's another kind of photographer. He just wants to say, I've shot all these things. Then you have the social street photographer who just wants to go to the market, you know, on 23rd Street in New York and shoot and see Susan and Bob and then go to Starbucks, you know, and, and thumb, through their, uh, thumb through their pictures. Then you have people who say, well, I want to learn something. And then you have people who want to share. And a lot of people share their pictures, but only a small percentage of these people have anything really significant to share instantly. And if they can get outside of their community and go abroad or or go into another state or see an event and get beyond the postcard image, then, you know, street becomes interesting. It's, it's. do you have a desire to meet people? Do you have a desire to um, hang out with other people? Do you have a desire to say, I went someplace and it was really interesting. I would have never done this. I would have stayed at the five-star hotel and seen the painted elephants instead of, going out in the middle of the night and watching uh, elephants come down the street with neon lights and fireworks for a marriage. And and that's the person who says, oh, it's not too dark, I can continue to shoot. Instead of, well, it, let's go eat now. <laughs> so, I mean, that's where, that's where it's going. Did I answer that correctly for you? Or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Okay. So what? Uh, yeah, no, go, go ahead. Keep going. Sorry, I started to interrupt. No, you. that's all right. No, no, no. Go ahead. No, I'm just I'm curious about your workshops. I mean, do you have a different theme each time, or is it? Oh yeah, yeah. Everything is different. Mm-hmm. And what I try to what I try to do is never plan anything. You know. We as Americans, we're we're so used to everything being set up and planned. You know, like we're going to Yosemite and we're going to shoot the waterfalls. Okay, so we're going to Yosemite, but it's up to you to find what's interesting. If you want to shoot the waterfalls, shoot the waterfall. But why are you shooting it? Are you shooting the response of a person or 
you're just shooting the the awesomeness of nature or is it the granite that you're interested in, or are you want to work on your exposures because exposures are different all the time and a lot of digital photographers don't understand anything about exposure they don't stand they don't understand anything about the elements it's just a cool picture and I try to make sure we go beyond the word cool because I'm not interested in cool. You can see a million cool pictures and each cool picture will be better than your cool picture. <laughs> so let's not be common people here with a camera. <laughs> so, so you're in Norway right now and I assume yeah. you, I assume you're there to teach a workshop or maybe you've already started, but I mean, what- yeah, we're on, yeah, we're on the streets and we're, <laughs> we're just basically doing, um, uh, cultural exploration of, of diversity. So that basically means if you see something that's interesting to you and you have a burning desire, pursue it, contact it, connect with it, uh, go with it, come back, let's all talk about it, see what we all have, let's work on this project or that project. So, I mean... Do people go out on their own for a day or so, and then you come back together and evaluate well, I, their what, work? What I I don't I don't let them go out on their own, um, and I know a lot of other people do for other reasons, you know. But I like to direct loosely what they're doing and what they're thinking because they could be thinking and doing the wrong, doing something wrong that um, might make street photography um, negative for them. And, you know, that's a, that's always a big possibility with someone being angry at you mm-hmm. because they don't understand. So I try to help them, Approach it in a safe manner. And that all depends on what it is they're doing, you know, or what's in front of them. And and that's important. For an example, one time in Cambodia, there was a, a woman with me in the group who really wanted to show the guys that she can shoot. And... She was walking with me, and at the corner was a young man playing on his smartphone, playing a game and having a great time. But underneath his smartphone was his AK-47. And she ran up, took the picture, startled him. He got mad, and I had to step in between them. Oh. And that's not what I want to do, but... I just thought maybe I should and calm down the situation. And I did that. And, you know, we left and, you know, she learned that you don't startle people and you have to learn how to be stealthy. And you have to understand what people see and think when you raise a camera to your face and when. And, you know these aren't these aren't things that most people know and understand 
And, you know, you don't really learn it in journalism. You learn it through life experience. Um, and I, you know, I, find, I find that funny because here we have all these so-called great masters. You know, and if you sit and listen to them, yeah, they're kind of boring. <laughs> you don't get much out of them. And you'll hear an amateur quote a phrase. Or you'll read that phrase in their portfolio. And I'm going, well, do you really know what it means? Because I'm pretty sure they don't. You know, for for most most points. Um, you are the artist and of your own picture. You shoot when you shoot, or as you're learning to shoot, you go back and learn from your work. And it's never done. You know, it's never complete. You have to keep going back after you've shot something. So you spend a lot of time teaching others. Yeah. In a lot of places. So so what's your been what's been your biggest takeaway from that? Oh I like to see people grow. And from time to time I get a picture off as you can see, mm-hmm. and I get to grow in addition because no one stops growing until they're dead. And then their art takes on a second life that grows in the minds of other people. And so this is a, this is a wonderful opportunity for myself to continue growing and to analyze work at the end of the, of a second day or a third day, what we all do, you know, and share. And, you know, I'm not upset when an, an amateur or someone takes a class and they take a really incredible picture that's better than mine. It's okay. Because it was meant that they take that picture. You know, I was not meant to take it. I was. I could have been someplace else or... I could have been watching him or her and then talking to her about what she did afterwards and why I think it's really good. And also get them to learn to talk and journal about their own work because journaling is your spiritual growth um, behind the camera, seeing through the glass. Now, that's a good point, journaling. What what do you mean by that? What do you encourage people to do? Well, I encourage them to write about what they feel when they see something and think about it afterwards. And this gets them away from saying, hey, you want to see a cool picture? You know, or if someone says the old saying, uh, for an example, well, thank God I'm not like that, and we have it much better. We have it better here. That person can say, you know, you don't know that person. They might be at the top of their world, in their culture, in their community, in their society, and you might be at the bottom leg of your own <laughs> culture and society and in debt trying to buy a home on a car and beat the the credit game 
Well, they have land, they have sheep, their kids go to school, and they work hard, and everything is clean. You know, when you can say that, you are practicing journaling, um, and then it gets more personal about the actual experiences that you encounter and feel uh, when you shoot. And with me, you will always encounter something uh, very emotional um, and mind-changing. And, and um, I wouldn't have it any other way. It's just that you never know what it's going to be because in a timeline, anything can happen. You can't freeze it and say, hold it. You just have to be able to catch the tail of it and go with it. And if it works out, you have a beautiful story. And if it doesn't, you have incredible knowledge of what went wrong and what should I have done so it could have gone right. And to me, that's a photo workshop. I don't do tours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound like it. No. So, but I'm going to ask you one more question about journaling. I mean, I mean, what's the best way to do it? Do you wait until the end of the day and just sit down and write everything out? Or do you encourage well, people to sit down at that time and do it? Because you, know, you have to stop what you're doing to write. Well, you, you, have to, you have to take an account for where we are in technology today. What happens is you feel something, you get the nerves up to shoot something, and as you're seeing it through the glass, you you get a very serious jolt of emotion, which sometimes causes you not to be able to shoot the next shot or a few shots, so you miss a few. But what happens is you immediately start communicating to the other photographer or to me about something. And... The, you basically want to know what it's like and they begin to say what it's like for them and you know today's society they jump on Facebook and start <laughs> writing down mm -hmm. so that's how the journaling begins and then and then the next time they shoot their journaling becomes more profound and it just grows from there it's you know it's having a relationship of of written thoughts or from visual thoughts so your um the one photo story that you have online that I really fell in love with is the um uh, day in the life of Superman <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh, I first saw those photos on your um on your five hundred p x site and I, and i and I go wow these these are really neat and then later I saw the story with with the narrative yeah and so i is that a good example of uh, of journaling tied that's, with the photos that, that's a that's a real good example of journaling, but you know you have to get to that level first mm-hmm you know, you have to be able to see inside a person. You have to be able to know 
one's fears, one's pains, one's beliefs that make make things uh, insane to um, extremely joyous or victorious or um, extremely sad. And you just have to understand. You have to feel and see the picture, um, journal-wise. And when you when you start to see it, then you then you see everything else. It falls in place. But it, you know, it takes time. It's it's nothing that you can learn in one Photoshop. You know, and my work. Some of my workshops go six weeks. Really. You, you take a six weeks, you you learn. Uh, you take a f- three or four day, you get an idea. Um, the the level of work is intensely different, you know, because everybody is r- rushing and running, you know. And, and when you think about journalism or journal street, which became journalism. You know, by the elite people to, as I feel, to keep other people out of it because their, their money source was magazines and newspapers at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, um, you have to do a whole bunch. You know, you really have to shoot a lot. I think in film, they used to say if you can shoot 200 rolls of film, then you'll start understanding what photography is about. You know, 200 rolls of film at 36 exposure. You know, today, someone who doesn't know anything can go out with a digital camera and a 32 or 62 or 120 or 256 gig card and fill it up and still not know what photography is. So... You would, you would have to say a digital photographer begins to learn photography, um, not by shooting a volume of work like that, but to get the smallest digital card he can get, like a four gig, set it on raw, which gives you 36 to 48 images. Yep, not too many. And spend the day on one thing shooting it. You know, and, and it's hard to get people to, to do that because you can tell them but they're going to do what they want to do there's no perfect student there's no perfect workshop but there there are methods to trying to make someone with a camera want to see and want to do more so when somebody spends six weeks with you are they going from are you in one place for six weeks or are they Going no. in different places with you. We might, I mean, for an example, I went to Romania and I had a small group. We shot Romania, the northern parts of Romania. It was very interesting seeing the, the lives of farmers and how they live, what they work, their, their level of intensity behind prayer and you know religion, to getting off a plane, driving by a gypsy camp and deciding, oh, we're going to hit the gypsy camp and we're going to get in, you know. And it's not easy getting in a gypsy camp. And we got into the gypsy camp for two days and just shot the bejesus out of it. (laughs) And uh, 
when I saw everybody's work, I was I was just totally blown away. And I was even happy with my own work. But then we went to Sicily. No, not Sicily. We went to Nepal. And we went into the old streets of the old mafia and stuff like that. And, you know, oh, my God. We had a great time shooting. Um, and, you know, it continued on. The only thing we planned was at the time was we were going to do six weeks in in um, Sicily. I mean, in um, Nepal. I mean, not Nepal. I mean, oh, God, I'm just, my <laughs> brain is going. I'm on my agenda today. Yeah, it's getting um, late, yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, the, the thing was, once we saw the gypsies, the, gyp- the gypsies made us go to Romania. Because we wanted to follow up on what we saw and understand more about gypsies in other countries. So we're pretty flexible. Um, we also went to Morocco and shooting Muslims, uh, photographing Muslims. Let's put it that way, not shooting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is not an easy thing to do because they don't like you with the camera. They accuse you of photographing them. They try to intimidate you. They will push you. They will harass you. They will throw stones at you. I mean, they'll do everything. So most people end up shooting the backs of people. And my style of shooting and what I try to teach is we don't want your back. We want your front. So you just have to be just very smooth in shooting to the point where they don't notice it. Like, for an example, uh, I think that the picture you selected was the Moroccan guy holding the cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, he never saw it coming. <laughs> you know. And when I saw it coming to him coming to me, I was like, oh, my God, I have to have this picture. You know, I went after it. And I believe in only one shot. When you're shooting streak to get a picture, one shot, um, not rapid advance, 30, 20 frames of one thing, um, simply because you still will miss the moment. You're into the camera and not into the timeline. The shorter classes, which are Superman mm-hmm. uh, in Costa Rica, and we did not know we were going to shoot Superman. I did not know I was going to shoot Superman. And I saw him at a carnival. And we just saw the directions. We broke into individual groups and shot him as he passed and watched him. And unfortunately for the group at the time, the workshop ended and they had to go back to work, but I was still in the country. And I followed up on Superman and got to know him um, all within a day and a half. (laughs) And I just started getting into his world and getting into his home life and seeing the breakdown, as the journal says, you know, the family and how they reviewed him and how he saw himself as a senior reinventing himself in his world to make an honest living. When 
people normally see someone like that, they think they're nuts, they think they're crazy, and they have it better. But, you know, was it once you turn 65 in this country, providing you can last that long <laughs> with a job, you know, usually you're gone by 50 now or a little earlier. Mm-hmm. You have to reinvent your world to survive. And he was he was a great study of trying to understand that. And I discovered that he's loved in the city of San Jose. He's loved. And when there's something going on, they say it's not only a strike. Superman was there, and this makes it official. This is a super strike. You know, things like that. It's to be paid attention to. Uh he, in the end, he did become a sort of mascot for the Costa Rican soccer games, which sure. was a goal. And and he's now sought after for other things in in his country. And he was just a janitor all his life, you know. And now. The good thing is his family is now seeing that the man had a vision and they're coming back together as a whole and not being fragmented, thinking that dad's nuts. And when I, I first saw the photos, I, I thought, but these, yeah, these, this is a pretty quirky thing. And then when I actually read the story, I thought, what a, what a cool story. Now, how do you even find something like that? Of course, like seeing a guy walking around town dressed like Superman obviously catches your attention. But how do you just get so close to find out what's really going on when you're from another place? And well, yeah. Well, I'm kind of a people person. Yeah. I mean, I, I can talk to the trees and the birds and the bears and the, some animals, but not really. <laughs> I'm not a monk, but I love people. You know, you know, it, it's it's kind of like why do we travel? Do we travel just to see great buildings, you know, or see the foods or to say this is art is culture? Or are we traveling really to understand the minds and hearts of people? You know, we don't have to sell religion or our way of life. We just have to hear just a little thought from somebody you know i mean that's why i travel is on a personal level is just to hear a little thought yeah uh, i think travel is just fascinating and personally when it when i can get closer to where real people live and what they do i it's even more so yeah and we in, tend to insulate ourselves from that as americans yeah. We do, we do. You know, like the the uh, the Indian holy. It's always been shown as this wonderful, beautiful festival when in their mythology it's about racism. It's about not being happy with the color you are. Hmm. And this one particular god complained to his mother about it and she said on this day you can paint anyone any color you want so everyone started throwing paint on everyone's face and when you go to India the first thing you realize is most people are not 
the the exact color you see in the movies. Mm-hmm. They they are more of the African side of life, and so you you're in a little shock saying, "Is this India? Or is this Africa?" You know, but you know it's India because your passport says it, your visa says it. But then you're watching people um, recall past history hundreds of years ago when one group ruled the area and tormented the others. And then eventually there was an overthrow 200 years later. And mm-hmm. and so these these throwings of of color becomes the old wars of what part of the religion are you from you did this to us we did that to you and it continues on you know so there's it's a really rough thing and i took some photographers and they wanted to go see this they thought it would be fun and i said well i don't think it's gonna be that much fun but you have to be very careful and they discovered that it was it was it was a war zone, you know, <laughs> really for these people. And you're from the West, you know, and, and you're also part of their problems. Mm-hmm. So they take it out on you, and there you are, the street photographer. How do you handle it? Well, you do a lot of ducking, <laughs> and 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 you and you learn not to stand still. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Don't, don't be an easy target, and 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 take your cheapest camera. <laughs> take, yeah. take the Holga today, huh? <laughs> yeah, All right. Take the camera that you want to throw away. Oh, take, interesting. Know. Yeah, see, it's almost advice you would have given somebody to. Uh, walking the streets of New York twenty years ago. <laughs> well, yeah. Don't stand still. Don't stand still. Yeah. And you know, maybe you don't stand still anywhere. Yeah, that's true. You know, but amateurs stand still. You know, the the only other advice I I would I say for the love of photography is, you know, you have to learn rules. And, you know, amateurs create more rules than there are commandments in the Bible or stories in the Bible. And the rule they forget probably is do not say you're going to follow this other photographer because he's better or she's better. You, you learn to stay out of each other's frames because if you travel three to 6,000 miles and you're shooting something and there's old George from Biloxi, Mississippi standing in your picture in his native clothes from Biloxi, Mississippi staring at what you're doing, <laughs> you have nothing to hang on your wall unless you want to publish a book of, of George, huh? <laughs> of George and amateur photographers that don't know the rules. Stay out of the line of someone else's camera. Respect it. And if you have a picture, don't hog it. Don't stand there so no one else can get a picture. Move away. Move on to the next shot. You know, these are the things that upset, I call them the common people with cameras. They, and, it, and it's rightfully so. I mean, they've spent 
a ton of money to do something and a ton of money to fly there. And all of a sudden, it's your red camera bag and, you know, Nike shoes and jacket on or something in their picture, you know, along with indigenous people. And, and it's wrong. You know, we have to respect one another and do our own thing and not try to do what the other person did. I guess in a, a golf analogy is don't stand over the over the cup when they're putting, huh? No. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Right. So Glenn, what's so what's left? You've been everywhere. What what ha, where haven't you been? Where do you want to go next? What's well, on what's on your bucket list? Well, my bucket list is Nepal this time around. And then I want to go back to Cambodia because there are interesting old people who live through the um, killing fields who now live in their temple. And their temples are like 4th and 14th century in the jungles. And this is where they hide out and dwell and their great-grandchildren come and visit them. Um, and there's a, there's a similarity between aging seniors who are near death who all of a sudden find community within church you know back at home so i'm going to try and draw those two elements together and mm. and, and show that there is a common denominator in age and through life you know and purpose you know and and it, it'll be fun wow great story Oh, thanks. So, tell us what I don't know, who, who's influenced you the most throughout your career. Well, I would, I would, I would say nobody. Okay. And and the the reason I say nobody is because whatever they've done, I can't do. No one can do. Um. They might have inspired you to go out and get a camera, but as soon as you get a camera, you know, you it's like jumping in the pool for the first time without your safety raft. It's up to oh, you. It's up to you, right. And you don't know what to do because you just don't. Because everybody's experience is unique, and you will find people that try to copy the style of and you know that that's that's limited photography i would i would say probably um a writer you know like uh, austin strindberg dance of death or something like that where there's all this subtone of story going on you know and learning how to see the substone uh, sub tones or sub stories, or B stories, if you're into filmmaking, um, go forward and 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 being able to visualize that and shoot it. Wow. So, have you, of all the people you've taught, is there somebody who really stands out as your greatest success story among students? Yeah, I have. I have one or two. I have one or two, and and. One's a woman because in her photo club, which is over a hundred years old, 
she's the first women woman to win you know in a century hmm. so all the men are good and she's just better now and there was a a guy by the name of Steve Grayson who I met at Los Angeles City College and I I became his mentor for a while and he got into journalism and had a very successful happy life until he passed Hmm. but um, you know there can be a million success stories it's you know just seeing a little light or a crack in the door you know is all that really matters you know it's just up to the person to go further on their own or do another round with me or do a round with someone else variety is the spice of life so uh, anyway we're just wrapping up and before we go I'd like to ask you where people can find you well they can find me as uh, blindmanshooting.com or uh, 500px slash blindmanshooting.com photo community you just have to go to photocommunity.com and type in my name, Glenn Capers, and you can find it there. Yeah, and we'll include a link. Yeah. And uh, that's about it. I'm on Twitter, but I really don't know how. I'm Glenn Capers Photography, I think, but, you know, I don't Twitter that much. And I'm on Tumblr. I think Glenn Capers Photography also. Yeah, you can only do so much. No, you can only do so much. Is right, and I like five hundred px. I think it's a a really good good place for people to look at their own work and and grow. And it's important for them not to look at other people's work and emulate because. There's no growth, mm-hmm. you know. So the question is, do you want to grow or do you want to emulate? So I always tell people, you want to grow, look at your own work. Don't get into their work. Just look at yours because you're a different person. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And, it, and it's hard not to look at the other stuff on 500px because there's a lot of really good people on there. Well, there's a lot of really good people, right? Right. And but, some of it's really distracting. <laughs> yes, yeah, some of it is really distracting, but we won't talk about the distracting things. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I you know, although I I'm not into bugs and insects, and when people send me no. links to their bugs and insects, I'm in the middle of breakfast or lunch. Yeah. I'm like, oh no, <laughs> no, let's just wait. Not my salad. (laughs) A backstroke. Right, right. All right. Well, Glenn, thank you very much. I really appreciate this. This has just been uh, been excellent. I could I could sit here and listen to you all day. I'll have to take one of your workshops. Okay. Maybe when I'm back in Colorado Springs. (laughs) What you have to do is come to Cleveland, Ohio, do a workshop, street workshop, Cleveland, Ohio. I hear that's a good place to do street, Cleveland. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff out of there. Yeah. 
Well, thank you so much. Yeah, it's oh, it's been great. So I uh, really appreciate it. All right. So we'll have to do it again. We will, and I'll be in touch with you while I travel. Good. Well, thanks. All right. I will, you too. Take care.